Sorry? Okay, so I can just start. Okay, so uh, uh, Professor Sergio Verdu, who cannot be here tonight, asked me to introduce uh, Roger Penrose. He's giving a series of three lectures. Uh, in fact, I should remind you that the next lecture will not be here, but rather in Richardson Auditorium on Monday at 8 o'clock. And uh, uh, these lectures are in the context of the Louis Clark Banuxen Foundation. So a few words about it. It was founded in 1912 with a bequest of $25,000 under the will of uh, Louis Clark Vanuxen of the class of 1879. By direction of the executors, at least one half of the income of this foundation is to be used for an annual series of public lectures before the university on subject of scientific interest. Previous uh, provisions were also made for publications of the lectures. Lecturers have included Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, James Conant, and uh, Carl Sagan, who talked on extraterrestrial life. Van Uxen pursued a career in insurance, eventually specializing in insurance law. He died in 1903. Uh, to say that I'm uh, very honored to introduce Sir Roger Penrose to give uh, the first in his uh, series of public lectures on the status of modern physics is an understatement. No other contemporary mathematician, I believe, has had a greater impact on overall science than he did. In this respect, he resembles the great mathematical giants of the late 19th and early 20th century, such as Minkowski, Poincaré, Hermann Weyl, David Hilbert, John von Neumann, and Kolmogorov, whose works had a profound influence on physics. Rather than dwell on his long and very impressive list of titles, awards, and distinctions, I will limit myself to mentioning some of his main achievements. Most of them are related to the theory of general relativity in which no other scientist after Einstein, including the very famous Stephen Hawking, has had as much impact as Penrose. He has made decisive contributions which greatly deepen our understanding of black holes and singularities in general relativity. He's best known for introducing the fundamental concept of a trapped surface and showing that its presence in some region of space-time must bring about the future formation of singularities and therefore the necessary breakdown of the classical relativity theory. His rigorous mathematical result in this respect settled an old puzzle in general relativity concerning the presence of singularities in almost all special solutions discovered in the earliest years of the theory, such as those of modern cosmology, which predict the notorious Big Bang. All such solutions had been found by assuming the presence of symmetries. And many argued that the singularities may be unstable artifacts of these assumptions, bound to evaporate under more realistic conditions. Well, they were all wrong. Penrose's theorem proves that singularities in general relativity are there to stay and thus present one of the most serious challenges to our current understanding of the universe. Indeed, the general theory of relativity is our most satisfactory physical theory, both in terms of its inner mathematical clarity and beauty, as well as in view of its relevance to physical phenomena. If one takes into account Newton's theory of gravity, which general relativity incorporates as a limiting case, it is also one of the best experimentally verified scientific theory. The presence of singularities implies, however, that Einstein's paradigm is incomplete. To be able to salvage some of the most predictive power of the classical relativity theory, even in the presence of singularities. 
Penrose has formulated two highly influential and very intuitive conjectures concerning the nature of gravitational collapse known as the cosmic censorship conjectures. Nice name. The resolution has become, the, the resolution of this conjecture has become the holy grail of the modern mathematical theory of general relativity. It is widely believed that the ultimate solution to the conundrum we face due to the presence of singularities can, however, only come from a quantum theory of gravity. Finding such a theory is really the holy grail of uh, theoretical physics. Another very important innovation to general relativity due to Penrose is the elegant geometric notion of conformal infinity, which he used in a striking manner to derive the basic law of gravitational radiation. His simple and very intuitive conformal pictures are as conspicuous in the modern theory of general relativity as the Feynman diagrams are in quantum field theory. In addition to all this, Roger Penrose is the initiator of a major mathematical program called Twister Theory, whose ultimate goal is to combine relativity with quantum mechanics. Together with Wolfgang Rindler, he has written a monumental two-volume book called Spinners and Spacetime, widely regarded as a Bible of the field. Even though the ultimate success of Twister Theory remains in doubt, it has nevertheless generated, not unlike the more fashionable string theory, a wealth of methods and ideas which have been extremely influential in other areas of mathematics as integrable systems, differential geometry, and topology. Roger Penrose is best known to the general public for his intriguing, controversial, and very stimulating book, The Emperor's New Mind, concerning computers, minds, and the laws of physics, for which he was awarded the Ron Poulin Science Prize book. This was followed by Shadows of the Mind, a search for the missing science of consciousness, and the nature of space and time, a lively intellectual, his lively intellectual duel with Stephen Hawking. No presentation of Penrose can be complete without mentioning his work on non-periodic tilings of the plane, an interest which he took up as a graduate student at Cambridge. He first discovered such a tiling with seven tiles and six, and finally in 1974, he found a non-periodic tiling with only two tiles. This looked like an esoteric mathematical curiosity until 1984 when Dan Schechtman discovered an alloy which exhibited a non-periodic crystalline structure. Others were soon discovered. The new materials, called quasi-crystals, were later connected to Penrose's stylings. This is one more example of what Wigner called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, that is, the miraculous way by which pure mathematical constructs with no apparent relationship to anything useful turn out to have unexpected connection to what is called reality. No other scientist today is better qualified to address these mysteries than Sir Roger Penrose. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for those over-generous comments. Um, I always feel a little bit nervous about addressing this audience on the topic which I've elected to uh, talk about. Let's get this machine working first. <clears throat> the title, as you know, is Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe. Well, we know that these words would apply perhaps to other areas and scientists are usually 
feel, you know, it's not like that in science. Uh, and ideally, of course, science should be reasonably immune from these three Fs, since theoretical ideas are continually subject to confrontation by observation and experiment. Moreover, precise theories tend to be mathematical theories, and there's a very stringent, you know, mathematical theory. It's got to make sense. It's got to be rigorous. It's got to be consistent. And uh, that's a very strong criterion. And you might think it would rule out theories, at least, which, which don't stand to uh, hold together. Yet, yeah, as regards experiments, um, often the crucial experiments are not available uh, due perhaps to expense of the experiments or intrinsic difficulty, or quite often it's the case that the experiments collect so much data, just enormous amounts of data. This is true in particle physics, and uh, I think it's becoming true also in cosmology, that there's just so much data uh, that you, you really have to... I mean, it's a theoretical issue to know what to do with it, basically. Um, I don't, you know, who knows what there is in all the information that's been obtained from particle accelerators, which if you just chose to analyze it in a different way, you might find something which is just hiding there, and nobody knows the right way of looking at it. And when you have theories which uh, aren't immediately testable by experiment, as this is true of a lot of modern ideas, then, of course, aesthetic judgments can be fundamental and very important. We know in physics that it's often been the case that uh, ideas of what's beautiful uh, have been very important. I mean, Dirac was very explicit about this, and certainly his equation with the electron turned out to be very fundamental to uh, um, physics, and aesthetic criteria seem to be very important. This is a very difficult issue because of the subjective nature of these things. I mean, somebody might think something's beautiful and somebody else not have that view. Uh, and so it's difficult to be kind of objective about these issues. So elements of these three Fs can indeed be assume significant proportions. I should say that this question of uh, aesthetic judgments is a more subtle thing than what one might call Occam's razor. Uh, simplicity is not really very clear. I mean, Einstein's general relativity, for instance, is that a simple theory or not? Well, it's difficult to write down the equations and very difficult to solve them and certainly initially very difficult to grasp the crucial ideas. But nevertheless, you still have the feeling that that theory is ultimately something very simple. But... I mean, it's not something you would appreciate necessarily, and it's a bit hard to know, you know, how can you apply these concepts. Certainly it's a very beautiful theory, but how do you judge the elegance of a theory? Uh, I mean, how do you know that it's really there? I mean, different people, you might formulate it in different ways, and it's uh, not necessarily obvious that one person's view as to what's elegant will be the same as somebody else's. Okay, well, these issues will be sort of have some relevance to things I want to say. But before talking about um, present-day physical ideas, let's talk a little about some fashionable scientific theories of the past that today we don't take seriously. There are lots of them. 
I'm sure I don't know most of them, for the good reason that uh, if we don't take them seriously, we don't sort of learn about them. At least unless we're good historians of science, I suppose, but most physicists aren't. Uh, well, let me mention in particular one of them. This is the theory that uh, the Platonic solids, the ancient Greeks had this sort of view, at least some of them. I, I suppose it would have been called a fashionable theory in those days. The basic states of matter in the universe were associated with the Platonic solids. Well, I've had to try to draw some of these things here. So here we have fire, which is associated with the regular tetrahedron, and uh, air with the regular octahedron, water, the regular icosahedron, and cube is, is uh, associated with Earth. And then they, they found there were five of these polyhedra, so they had to think of something that the last one corresponded to. And, uh, well, I think the view that the Greeks had was that somehow the way that the stars and planets and the moon and so on, how they, the laws that governed them were really quite different from the laws that governed things on the Earth. It really took Newton to appreciate uh, that the same laws applied to celestial bodies as to uh, goings-on on the Earth. But anyway, this was a place for perhaps this other kind of matter, which refers to celestial objects. Anyway, this is sort of Plato was, was uh, interested in these things. You might think this is pure fantasy, and what's this got to do with science? But it's quite interesting, because I was, uh, in a book I'm trying to complete, I was looking for pictures of these things, preferably signed with Plato, you know, at the end of it. But, <laughs> but uh, I gave up on that eventually and had to, had to draw my own pictures. But uh, uh, in, in some information I've got about this, I'm quite struck by the fact that it's not just an association like this. There's actually a theory which goes along with these things. And it has to do with how you break these things up and transform one polyhedron into another. And that was related to how matter can transform in one form or another and so on. So there was quite an elaborate theory um, of these objects. And maybe in those days it was fashionable and everybody, you know, it was, you'd be a heretic to take a view that maybe this didn't really correspond to the way the world was. Well, anyway, that's, uh, I don't think many people believe it these days, but... Uh, it seems like an interesting thing to look at, perhaps. But I've just listed a few other things. The Ptolemaic system was extremely successful for many centuries. Um, I'm not quite sure whether the phlogiston theory and the caloric theory are the same thing or different things. It uh, <laughs> just shows you I'm not much of a historian of science. Caloric theory, I suppose that meant that heat was a substance. Um, um, well, this one I think of as... Phlogiston is something that's basically negative oxygen. But I suppose you could make a theory out of that. Um, the, uh, Kelvin had the idea that particles might be not. Sometimes people say, well, they are. And this theory, although it went out, is sort of coming back again. I'm not sure one can quite say that. But it's certainly true that some ideas which may have been fashionable at one time and then fade away and then can come back again. I mentioned Mies theory. Um, it's quite curious that uh, sometimes as people consider there's a bit of a dispute about who actually first wrote down the equations of general relativity. I mean, I think it probably was Einstein, but some people say, uh, well, Hilbert wrote it down. Um, he was using a variational principle. And what I find sort of interesting about Hilbert's version, where you see there's the left-hand side, which talks about space-time curvature, and the right-hand side, which is the 
matter contribution. And Einstein made some comment about the left-hand side being made of marble and the right-hand side made of wood. Uh, but in Hilbert's version, the, left, the right-hand side wasn't just the energy-momentum tensor of matter, it was a very specific theory, which was, it was a, th a theory of everything, in fact. The left-hand side was gravitation, and the right-hand side was Mies theory. Now, who knows about Mies theory these days? But in those days, it was a very fashionable theory, uh, which was supposed to encompass all of matter, uh, except for gravitation, which is the other side. So uh, people were doing that sort of thing in those days, too. Uh, but who's heard of Mies theory? I don't know. Well, maybe a few people have, but it's not a very famous idea these days. Okay, well, let's leave that aside and now try and say something about um, ideas that people are talking about now. But before doing that, I think I did I, something I wrote about these lectures did warn people that there's a little bit of mathematics in what I want to say. And so what I thought I would do is get the mathematics out of the way right at the beginning. Um, it's very simple. I'm going to talk about some very simple ideas, but they will be ideas that come back again, basically two ideas, but there'll be things which come back again uh, more than once in what I want to say later on. So I thought it was worth spelling it out right at the beginning. Now this is something very, very simple, but let me just say it. When you ra raise a number to a power, that of course means multiplying it by itself that many times, so a to the b is a times itself, total of v times. Now you might do this twice, and I noticed in a, a book that came out recently, it was printed all wrong, because when somebody meant uh, a, to, a to the b to the c, which would be this thing over here, it was written this way. Uh, you see, you might think that the brackets go either around the b and the c, or they might go around the a and the b. So if they go around the b and the c, that is what one means, and you might say, why don't we mean this one? Well, it's stupid to mean that one, because you just write it as a to the bc. Okay, well, that's a trivial point, that when you write a to the b to the c, you mean a to the brackets b to the c. Now, I just want to make a, some very basic elementary points, that with large numbers, a to the b to the c doesn't depend much on a at all. It really hasn't got anything to do with a. Well, a little bit to do with a, not much. Uh, it's everything to do with C. And in, I think, uh, the third lecture, I'm going to start talking about numbers like 10 to, the 10 to the 123. And the thing is, that number is really E to the 10 to the 123. But I don't write it this way because often one's trying to describe this to, in a popular lecture or something, and you have to explain what E is if you're going to do it this way. So the point is, they're, they're more or less the same thing. Um, even though E isn't quite very much like 10, there's E there. Uh, but if, if you take E to the 10 to the 100, I'm not sure that I, I was just trying this on the back of the envelope the other day. And I didn't have a calculator handy, but I think it's something like this. Uh, the 10 to the 10 to the 123 is about E to the 10 to the 123.2. Hardly makes any difference. Okay, we might, I mean the number, when we come to it, up there, we don't really know that accurately anyway, so... So you can see that it doesn't make a hooted difference what the one at the bottom is. Okay, that's just a, a very simple point. But although, as I say, I'll say something about this later, I want to say something else about these double exponent expressions, which is what happens when 
quantities like a to the b to the c in the limit when a and b become infinite quantities. Well, you have to worry a little bit think like things like that. Care is needed. But the short answer is that everything depends on the value of c. And it doesn't matter a hoot. Now, what b means either. It doesn't matter a hoot what a is, but it doesn't matter a hoot what b is either. At least a little bit of a hoot, but not much. And ideas, these are ideas that were made explicit by the, in the work of Elie Cartan. And uh, this actually is a notation, if you put infinities in there, that as far as I'm aware is due to John Wheeler, which I, who I hope he might be somewhere around here. Uh, but if I write a to the b to the c with infinity in it, so I mean a to the b infinity to the c. So really it's b, in, see that's infinity to the c and it's b times that. I hope that's clear what that means there. And you would use this, I mean, what does that mean, you see? Well, what is that notation is being used for is uh, the freedom in choosing B functions, and these could be, say, the components of some physical field, choosing them freely and continuously on some space of dimension C. So, you have a space whose dimension C, and you suppose that the field B can be chosen completely freely, no equations on that space. Uh, then you'd write infinity to the B times infinity to the C for the freedom involved in that choice. And this has an invariant, you have to be slightly careful about it, but basically it's an invariant notion. So you might have different ways of describing your fields, but uh, uh, the, basically the numbers B and C are invariants, but it doesn't matter too much about B. That's the tricky one you have to be a little careful about, but C is totally unambiguous. There's no problem with that at all. Now, one should make a point here that in ordinary physics, one normally has C equals 3. One's talking about fields which could be chosen freely throughout space, and then you would have some field equations which will propagate that into the future. So. Uh, you just fix everything on at one time, if you like. And that's uh, what it does in the future, is fixed by that. So you don't need to have a four out there. The space may be four-dimensional because it's space-time, but all you need to know is what's going on on a three-dimensional space. So you'll have basically things where C is three if you're talking about ordinary physics. Now, uh, just the comment here is that if C prime is greater than C, so you might have two of these expressions, that is to say a, a space whose dimension is larger than three, on which you specify things, and then you find no matter what the B is here, so I've got a B prime there and a B there, doesn't matter a hoot, uh, the difference is all to be seen in the C, and I put three greater than signs here, because it really is enormously huger, uh, whatever the Bs are. Okay, that's just a comment which will have some relevance in things I want to say later. Okay, that's point number one, which is all to do with these exponents and so on. Uh, point number two is something a bit different, which is um, the fact that complex numbers uh, are, well, four, two things. One is they're magical, and the other is that they seem to play a Im very important role in physics, at least in physics of quantum mechanics. Um, and this is numbers of the form 
A plus IB, where A and B are real numbers, ordinary real numbers, and where I is the square root of minus one. And certainly throughout uh, ancient history, there was a lot of argument about these things. Were they things you should take seriously? Were they just an artifact? And so on. Well, it's certainly the case that uh, complex numbers uh, play, provide wonderful insights into um, mathematics. And uh, let's see, before saying that, i just give you the way in which one operates with complex numbers. You plop them in the plane, the real axis going one way, and the imaginary axis going the other way. So A plus IB it just has Cartesian coordinates A and B. And there are rules about how you add numbers and multiply them. That's just the geometry. You don't even need to know that for what I was saying. Okay, that's just a picture of complex numbers. I say they provide many insights. Well, here is one of them. Well, let's take the whole thing there. I could list enormous numbers of these things. Complex numbers are really extraordinarily powerful in providing insights into what's going on with real numbers. But this is just one example where one might be concerned with a power series like this, which changes, happens to be alternating signs, but it doesn't have to be like that. And this uh, represents the function 1 over 1 plus x squared. But it only does it if you take x between minus 1 and plus 1. If you get outside that range, then the series doesn't converge. Whereas if you plot this function, it just looks like a perfectly ordinary function. No problem about it. It just has a bit of a bump in the middle. And you find that your power series goes wrong. It's all right in this range in the middle here, but it goes wrong outside there. And you can take the various uh, terms one by one and simply add them together and plot them with your computer, if you like, and you see the curves flap up and upwards and downwards and get worse and worse and worse beyond that line on the outside. So you say, what's... Wrong with that? Well, uh, why does it flap up and side and down? Why does it go wrong outside that range? You don't see any reason from the look of the real curve. But then, if you know about complex numbers, then you say, well, this function does go wrong at i. I called it z instead of x now. And uh, it goes wrong at these two places, which aren't on the real line at all. But you see that anything which is closer than that is fine, but anything which is further away from the origin than that, the series will diverge. And the reason it goes diverges is because of the i and minus i, which you simply wouldn't see if you just look at the real numbers. Well, this is a, a very familiar thing, I hope. If not, well, then that's what it is. Uh, um, it's just one thing that these, these sorts of ideas do for you is they make sense of things that are completely crazy like this, you see. You might say, what happens if you put 2 in there, you see? Well, it give you 1 minus 4 plus 16 minus 64, etc., etc. And the answer, according to this formula, if that's the same as this, is a, one, is a fifth. And you say, well, how can this sum possibly give you a fifth? Well, I mean, there's no way it could if you just add them up. But in a certain sense, deep down, this a fifth is in a certain sense the right answer. Now you see, that's the sort of thing you have to think that... Uh, well, I mean, Euler would have had no trouble with this at all. He said, yes, of course that's the right answer. Um, it's the right answer because it gives you that series and for that function and so on. 
But it's the kind of thing you have to bear in mind. In a certain sense, even though rigorously that can't possibly be a fifth, there are ways of looking at it, particularly through knowing about complex numbers, to tell you that in a sense, deep down, that is the right answer. Sort of morally, it's the right answer. Um, okay, well, these sort of things may come back into what I wanted to say before. I, I should, when I think about it, I shall write this sort of funny C at various spots to indicate here are the complex numbers coming in and there's, there's some magic associated with them. Some kind of mystery out there which is maybe something to do with physics or is it just something to do with mathematics? That's the kind of issue that uh, one might have to worry about. Okay, well now let me, I haven't really said anything about fashion yet. This talk's supposed to be about fashion. So let me say something about quantum gravity. Now, Carlo Rovelli, who is a, somebody who works in the subject of quantum gravity, but he works in a particular approach to the subject, which is called loop variable theory. And uh, in a talk that he gave in the uh, International Congress, uh, on general relativity and gravitation, which was in Pune in India in December 1997. Well, he thought he'd do a little survey. He's not a social scientist, so no doubt one could question the survey and uh, the nature, the rigorous nature of it or not, but uh, I'm not going to worry about that. What he did was to look at the uh, Los Angeles archives and find out in the previous year how many papers on each approach to quantum gravity were there. And this was the result of his survey here. You see string theory, 69. Loop quantum gravity, see, so he came out second because it was, uh, his own approach was to do with loops, uh, and so on. Now, I don't know if he did the survey again, whether, whether you, I imagine you wouldn't get hugely different answer from that. I should also point out that, uh, although I'm not going to say much about it, although implicit in my mentioning complex numbers and so on, is the fact that I happen to be uh, rather in favor of another approach, which in fact Sergio mentioned, which is twister theory, and you notice there is actually one down here. So uh, if it was done another year, you might find a zero there, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, but... Uh, this is just rather to give you some sort of feeling for the uh, activity that goes on in the subject of quantum gravity and the fact that certainly uh, most of it seems to be in string theory. When I say most, I say that advisedly because if you add together all the others, you certainly get a number which is less than 69. As you can compare, you can tell this is less than uh, twice the number 69. Okay. So it certainly is a string theory is something which is fashionable. There's no question about that. Now, it might be fashionable for good reasons. It might be fashionable for um, bad reasons. It might be fashionable for reasons which uh, not many people understand and so on. But let me try and address the issue. I think about the motivational ideas behind string. I should say that I've never worked in the subject myself, so you're looking at an outsider's view on this. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Uh, but it's the only thing I can do without becoming an expert on the subject, which I haven't got time to do, I'm afraid. Uh, but um, let's try and understand some of the reasons, the motivational reasons, and why people do it. So that's really the sort of thing I want to address in this talk. 
Um, well, quantum field theory, that's where we start. I'll say more about quantum theory in the next lecture, uh, so let's not worry too much about quantum, what quantum field theory is, but it's a wonderful theory which does uh, apply to, well, is it everything or only certain kinds of things, but it's, it's a wonderful theory anyway. Uh, and there, you can sometimes get numbers out of this theory which are extraordinarily precise. Now this is an example. Uh, it's not, it may be there are figures now that are more recent than the ones I've got up there. I haven't checked on the, the latest figures, but uh, they can't have changed hugely. Uh, the, uh, this is the magnetic moment of the electron measured in Dirac units, and you notice that the theoretical number is 1.00115965 and then there's some uncertainty in the figures here, at least there was at that time. Uh, or you can take the observational figure, which is 1.00115965211 and then 93 and so on. Well, that's pretty incredible. So you see that the theory and observation really do agree to this extraordinary degree, which is telling you that there is something very profoundly true, if you like, about the theory. Yet, all these answers depend on having an effective and essentially unambiguous way of dealing with the infinities or the divergences that arise. So what you find is that if you somehow blindly applied what you thought were the rules of quantum field theory, you don't get that answer, you get infinity. And then you have to have some way of getting rid of the infinities and getting this answer. So you see there's a big discrepancy between this answer and the answer that's up here. Uh, well, that's one of the things you've got to get used to in the subject and know how to handle these infinities and so on. Well, one of the important elements in this is a thing called renormalization, which is the method of kind of putting the infinities in nice parcels and... Uh, putting them into the scalings of certain parameters so that you don't need to know. Okay, the theory doesn't go as far as you might like and you, you can't work out what those parameters are, such as the charge on the electron, say. You just have to say, well, the theory is not going to tell you that answer because it's got an infinite scaling factor. And you say, well, if you put that in, that infinite scaling factor into the value of the charge, you say, you, you just work with the observed value, then you can get rid of a lot of the infinities in, in this way. Anyway, that's the idea. Now, other ways you can get rid of infinities are by using what are called gauge symmetry groups, which can be enormously helpful in ensuring that large numbers of infinities cancel out. So if you have some kind of a symmetry in there, which is uh, basic to the theory you're talking about, the dynamics of the theory you're talking about, then you may well find that you can somehow cancel these infinities out. So that's another powerful ingredient. And in fact, in the standard model of particle physics, one makes use of this gauge symmetry idea. And uh, there's a symmetry group, which is written down here. Don't worry about what that means. If you don't know what those symbols are, it doesn't matter much for the purposes of this talk. But what you find out is that you get a theory, this so-called standard model, uh, which is an extraordinarily good agreement with experiment. And it makes use of renormalization. It makes use of this idea of uh, sort of pairing, well, getting rid of symmetries by making use of, sorry, getting rid of infinities by making use of symmetries. So it's a very powerful idea. 
And also, it's a powerful idea in another way, because you say, you know, if uh, you've got a theory which somehow well, fails to be renormalizable or doesn't have some way of getting out, getting these symmetries to, ca- these infinities to cancel, then it's not got much chance of working. So it's a good selection principle for theories. And the standard model uh, comes about in this sort of way. So that you know that uh, that's a, a good guiding principle to find a theory which makes sense. In addition to a guiding principle, you look out into the world and see what particles are really like. So those things together um, are what basically drove the standard model to the form that it is. So that's, that's great. But still, it's not the end of the story. You still get infinities. And there are something like 19, I'm never quite sure whether it's 19 or 17. It seems to depend on what you read, but never mind. 19 undetermined parameters in the standard model. And you'd like to have a theory which tells you what those numbers should be. I mean, maybe they all could be anything, but uh, it would be nice to have a theory which gives you some insights into why those numbers, masses of quarks or or coupling constants, various things, it would be nice to know why they have the values that they have. And string theory proposes to move forward, and it uses basically two highly ingenious theoretical ideas. So I want to give you some little idea about these theoretical ideas, and they enable one to um, move forwards definitely from the standard model ideas and get rid of these infinities or get rid of a good many of them. At least either they do that or else they give you an indication that uh, uh, it's likely they'll get rid of them. It's never quite clear which is with the statement, but let's not worry too much about that. Now. The first thing I want to say is basically the idea of a string, which is what string theory is about, after all. Um, And from strong interaction physics, I should have had a date here somewhere, but never mind. This is some good many years ago now. Uh, Strong action interaction physics, that's uh, hadrons, well, the forces that hold neutrons and protons together and so on. Some symmetries were noted which uh, could be made sense of by adopting this string rather than a particle picture. Well, I've really got the picture down here. The idea is that instead of thinking of particles as being point-like objects, uh, and so also it's useful to think in space-time terms, so a particle would then be a curve in space-time. The history of that point would be this one-dimensional curve. Whereas if it's a string, then the history of that will be this tube-like thing. And at any one moment, you see time is going up here. At any one moment, you take a section through it, and that tells you what the string is looking like at that moment. So um, that's the sort of picture one plays with. And notice the C symbol here. Uh, It turns out that it's a very useful and beautiful way of talking about these things to think in some sense of these things being Riemann surfaces. Riemann surfaces are complex surfaces. You have to fiddle around in, in a certain way which changes the signature. I won't worry about, worry about that here. But at least you see the role of these Riemann surfaces, very, very beautiful area of mathematics, playing its key role in one's studying of these 
uh, string-like objects. Now, another feature of this is that whereas the procedures of standard quantum field theory, and this involves what are called summing over Feynman graphs, well, you see here some Feynman graphs. My time goes up the picture, so you have to think of one particle going along here, another one here, and it's exchanging a photon or something like this. Here, these two particles are annihilating and become a, another particle and then producing two more and so on. Or they can do more complicated things like this. And uh, in the standard Feynman approach to quantum field theory, each of these things is an integral. Um, if it's one of these, you get a well-defined one. If you have a closed loop, then you're going to get infinities and so on. That's the sort of thing you've got to worry about. And then what you've got to do is take all of these and add them all up. Well, why you do all that has to do with the rules of quantum mechanics, which I'll say a bit about next lecture, so we won't worry too much about that here. But what you find is that two things here. One is you may well get nasty-looking infinities, and the second thing is that you don't see these strange symmetries which seem to be parts of strong interaction physics. Whereas if you write these things in the string way, it's really very, very beautiful. Instead of having these lines like this, they're all tubes. And then you see, looking at these two diagrams, for instance, that they're really the same. Whereas here, they don't look the same at all. When you're over here, okay, they may be a little thinner this way and thicker that way, but that's not too important. They're basically the same diagram. And the symmetries that seem to be present in these strong interaction physics uh, could be revealed in this way of looking th at things. And the things which look should give you these nasty infinities in standard approach, you just have a, a different topology. And these are the Riemann surfaces that the complex analysis is a very powerful way of talking about. So, this is all very beautiful, and there's no question about that. I don't deny that at all. Um, now, what about the other ingredient? The other ingredient is what's called supersymmetry. Now, uh, I just have to say something a little bit faintly technical. These things called bosons and these things called fermions. Well, fermions are like the ordinary particles, electrons, protons, neutrons, or the quarks that make up the neutrons and protons, um, which are, uh, you have an, as an exclusion principle. They're not allowed to be on top of each other in the same state. And in fact, solid materials depend upon fermionic nature of these basic particles. Um, or you can have the bosons, which are more like the forces, which the carriers of the forces between other objects or the particles of fields like the electromagnetic field or gravitational field, if you try to analyze it that way. Uh, and so you have these two families of particles, and they have to do with the statistics, too, whether they have what are called symmetric or anti-symmetric wave functions, and that's related to the nature of the spin, whether it's a, an integer or a, a half-odd integer. Bosons, it's an integer, and fermions, fermions have it. Anyway, it's a, this is a very standard part of particle physics, but the ordinary symmetry groups, like the ones in the standard model, sort of churn around the bosons like this, and they churn around the fermions like this, but they don't churn these around uh, together. They keep, each, they keep, the bosons keep separate and the fermions keep separate. 
Whereas the idea of supersymmetry, you have a generalization of the ordinary idea of a group to what's called a supergroup sometimes, um, and it churns around these things in a much more comprehensive way. And this can be very powerful at removing infinities. So if you were, um, if you, if you were God or something and trying to invent a theory, which uh, was you trying to get rid of these infinities, you'd be well advised to put supersymmetry in if you were just concerned with getting rid of the infinities because you get rid of a lot of them this way. doesn't mean that that's the way it was actually done. But that's an important thing to bear in mind. A lot of people are very, very uh, favorable towards supersymmetry for that kind of reason. I think they're interested in constructing theories and if you make it supersymmetric, you've got a much better chance of having a theory which is handleable. However, supersymmetry predicts that every fundamental particle should have what's called a supersymmetric partner, another partner. And if it's one of them with a boson, the partner would be a fermion and vice versa. However, none of these supersymmetric partners have ever been seen. Now, they may be there, it's just that they've not been seen yet. Now, the thing is, even though they've not been seen, the names are already there in waiting for them. Uh, for example, the photon, its supersymmetric partner, if the photon is a boson, supersymmetric partner would be called a pho photino if it's found. The graviton would have the gravitino if it's found, and the Z boson is, a, I think I've got these names right, the Zeno and the Wino for these things. Anyway, we don't have to worry too much about the names sounding a bit silly if the particles haven't been discovered yet. Oh, actually, that's not a very good reason because some of the names are, do look pretty silly even when we have found them. So perhaps we shouldn't think too much about that. We know that electrons are there and the quarks which uh, make up the um, neutrons and protons and so on. They've got their supersymmetric partners all waiting, the selectron and the squark. Now, it always struck me as this is an interesting example of a non-Popperian theory. You see, uh, as long as you don't find these supersymmetric partners, um, you, well, it doesn't disprove anything, you see, because you need what's this called supersymmetry breaking to separate the mass of the... One. See, initially these things should have the same mass. And you look around at the same mass and you don't find anything like what its supersymmetric partners should be. But maybe because of some supersymmetry breaking system, I won't go into what that means. I'm not totally sure I know what it means myself. But uh, what you'd need that in order to, to make the masses sufficiently different that we haven't seen the partners yet. And that's the idea, you see. You say, if you haven't seen the supersymmetric partner, that's because we haven't built a powerful enough accelerator yet to find the energy that we would need in order to find the partner. Now, this is the state of things as it is now, you see. As I say, it's non-Popperian because you could say, oh, so as long as you don't find these things, you just say, well, we've got to build a bigger machine and a more powerful machine and so on. And it doesn't get disproved, at least not in this way. There might be other ways of disproving these ideas. But uh, that's the state of affairs as it is. Every now and again you see a report in the newspapers which says some supersymmetric partner has been found. And then, at least so far, that's turned out not to be the case. Uh, so, well, you can take two views on this. But there's, it's certainly the case that supersymmetry is very much favored by theoreticians in high-energy physics. 
And uh, I suppose it's because it would be, if they, find, if they find these things, it would make life easier in many ways. But there's another reason why people like the idea of supersymmetry. At least I should say some people do. And that is because it's at least a, a central ingredient to modern string theory. The original version of string theory, which had to do with these strong interacting um, physics, uh, that's been superseded by other ideas. This wasn't initially supersymmetric, but supersymmetry has become a very important part of the development of string theory. So if you didn't have it, then theory would be in trouble. So that's a reason for wanting it, if you like. Now, there's another feature that string theory, as it has gone, has, uh, has emerged, and that is the presence of these extra space dimensions. Now, when I first heard about string ideas, I really thought it was a fantastic idea. I must say, it looked very beautiful, the way you have these tubes and these Riemann surfaces, and you can get symmetries and get rid of infinities and all sorts of things like that. But then I learned it doesn't work unless space-time has 26 dimensions. Well, I said, well, space-time doesn't have 26 dimensions, so, well, that's, that's the end of that, you see. But that wasn't the reaction of some people. They say, well, <laughs> if it doesn't have 26 dimensions, make it have 26 dimensions. Um, this would involve one time and 25 space dimensions. And then these original ideas were superseded by See, I should say, originally they, they were meant to be um, to do with strong interactions. That was the version I was describing before. But the newer ideas were that this, no, it's a quantum gravity theory. And when I put up my list before, that had to do with uh, quantum gravity. So now this has become a gravitational theory, and uh, there's a change in the sort of coupling strength, uh, change in sort of general character as well, but uh, basically the strings become much, much smaller. They become the sort of scale that you need to consider when you're talking about quantum gravity, the thing called the Planck scale, which is something like 20 orders of magnitude smaller than the ordinary kind of scale of fundamental particles. So that's, tw that's 20 powers of 10 smaller. So the strings are now, now, they're now much, much smaller, tiny little things now, much smaller than the scale of ordinary particles and so on. So this has now become a theory of quantum gravity. Uh, and there's an even newer version, I should say, which is uh, basically what's referred to as M-theory, where you introduce um, higher-dimensional entities, which are called brains or P-brains. Uh, all sorts of puns come up there, which I'm not even <laughs> going to worry about here. Uh, um, and there are also other kinds of objects which come into the theory referred to as D-brains and so on. I won't describe the ideas here, but I just mention here that the number of dimensions has gone up to 11. So you have 10 space and one time. Now you might say, okay, isn't this ridiculous because space-time doesn't have that number of dimensions. You know, you could see three of them out there and then there's time and that's it, isn't it? Well, this really goes back to some ideas. I have no idea whether this was ever, ever fashionable uh, in the old days. I suspect it wasn't. But uh, it was an idea originally 
put forward, I think, in 1919. Well, originally Kaluzen and Klein came in. So Kaluzen and Klein had this idea, a very clever idea, that not that long after Einstein's general relativity, Einstein's general relativity was to do with gravity, and the idea of Kaluzen and Klein was to incorporate electromagnetism also into the same sort of general scheme, but where you had to increase the number of space-time dimensions from four to five. And you say, well, why don't we see the fifth dimension? And the answer is that the fifth dimension is small. Well, what does it mean for a dimension to be small? Well, the analog of a hose pipe is often used here. Here we have a rather crude picture of a hose pipe running along like that. It looks like a one-dimensional thing. But if you take out your magnifying glass and have a look at it, you see, oops, it's really two-dimensional. The surface of this hose pipe is two-dimensional. But since it's such a small radius as you go around there, you might as well consider it as being only one-dimensional. So that's the idea. The Kaluza-Klein idea involves this. And it does actually provide a way of looking at electromagnetism or electromagnetism coupled to gravity, uh, which actually gives you the same answer as you would get if you use the standard Einstein theory, but where the electromagnetism is simply imposed on the space as a, as a field. So it's a, it's a pretty idea, uh, but you said, could you ask us, is it more than that? Is it actually going to give us something profoundly different. Well, you see, if you go from the string theory ideas, then you have to say, um, we are led to this kind of a picture. So let's go back to Kaluza-Klein with more dimensions. Well, it's a hose pipe with a good deal more dimensions, but Kaluza-Klein with more dimensions. But now, the original Kaluza-Klein theory assumed an exact symmetry around the hose pipe. So I've tried to draw that in this picture here, that, uh, that the, this hose pipe is given as being symmetrical around this. You rotate the hose pipe around its axis and it doesn't do anything. Uh, and what that tells you, or one thing that it tells you, is that there any, isn't any extra dynamical freedom from the extra dimension. Now, I just covered that little bit up there, but let's not, let's reveal it now. The question of how much functional freedom is there in the fields that you're talking about in this system. Well, you see, it's because you have this symmetry which is given to you around the hose pipe, you are still, like with ordinary physical fields, talking about this kind of functional freedom. So this is where these infinities of the age of the infinity, you know, that sort of stuff is coming in now. Whereas string theory, on the other hand, does allow a full dynamical freedom in the extra dimensions. Now this is actually a, a fundamental difference between the uh, string ideas as they exist now and the um, old Kaluza-Klein ideas. And you see that in the functional freedom involved. You see any function or wave function or whatever you're talking about or perturbations of the space will involve freedom going around here, which is completely up to you. It's not simply scale to be constant as you rotate around the host pipe. So the functional freedom for a 10-dimensional space-time, or 10-dimensional space-time is this one. Uh, as I say, it depends on the space part. So that's nine dimensions. So you have a nine up there, which is hugely more, incredibly more. If you're talking about the classical theory, 
you would certainly have so much more freedom in this higher dimensional picture that there's no chance, it seems to me, that it would resemble the theory that you're talking about in lower, uh, before you introduce this higher dimensional idea. So here's a question now. Why, in string theory, does this extra freedom not swamp everything and spoil any semblance of agreement with observation? Well, the standard string theorist's argument seems to be the following. Now, let me try and get this correct here. It uses quantum mechanical principles, and it says that if you want to excite the modes of oscillation in this, well, I'll draw it as a host pipe, but it's really higher dimensions. <clears throat> if you want to exceed, excite those extra degrees of freedom, you need a certain amount of energy, E, in order to excite the lowest mode of these uh, oscillations. So if you want to get anywhere with exciting those oscillations, see quantum mechanics involve these ideas being sort of discrete rather than continuous, and so you have to exceed this basic energy, E, in order to do anything in those extra dimensions. And this is the sort of point that's made. And then the rest of the argument says, however, this energy E is absolutely enormous by normal particle physics standards. Being of the Planck scale, this is the same Planck I was talking about before, Planck scale I was talking about before, but now it's energies now, which by any uh, particle physics standards is absolutely huge, and there's no way in your accelerator that you could get enough energy to excite those extra modes. So it's argued that the extra degrees of freedom are inaccessible by the ordinary physics of the present epoch. Well, the present e epoch, because you go way back into the early universe when the temperature was supposed to be absolutely vast, huge, then you find these energies would be available, if you like, at that time. But I want to say, is this a valid conclusion? And I have a lot of trouble with this argument. Although E is huge by particle physics standards, it is very tiny by cosmological or astrophysical standards. I should just say, how much, how big is this E? Well, I, I should go and work it out sometime, but it's, it's probably like a, a terrorist bomb or something like that. Okay, that's nasty enough. But on cosmological scale, that's absolute chicken feed. So this energy is not big if you're talking about cosmological scales. And that energy, if you could inject it into the system, would be enough to excite that mode over the entire universe. So it's, you think of the entire universe, you think that's, that's the framework in which you should be thinking. That energy is tiny. So it's more likely, then, than a particle physics type of interaction, that's perhaps not the right way of looking at it, will be some nonlinear instability in the space-time geometry. And is that nonlinear instability, it might be there, going to be something which could excite this energy? But the whole universe to play with and all that little tiny energy all you've got to do is get that into this extra, that, that mode to be excited. seems to me there's every reason to believe that it could be excited. Is there evidence that the 10 space-time geometry might be classically unstable? Well, I think there is good evidence that it is unstable. And this comes from a theorem that Stephen Hawking, and actually you referred to in your introduction, Stephen Hawking and I approved several theorems 
designed actually for four-dimensional space-times, but they apply perfectly well to 10-dimensional or 11-dimensional space-times, and they indicate, they, whether you say they absolutely rigorously prove or indicate, well, it's somewhere in between those, I would say. Uh, it's a pretty strong argument. One could do better, I'm pretty sure, if I had more time to think about it. Um, to, I think one could do a lot better than that. These things really do seem to tell us that the higher-dimensional space-times really are unstable, certainly classically unstable, and then you have to see is that how good an indication that is that they're quantum mechanically unstable. And I, I think uh, it is a good indication, but then one could argue about these things. Okay, now, if you, you just stop there, you see, you might say, well, why do we take string theory seriously? Because after all, it's telling us we've got to have all these extra dimensions, and all these extra dimensions are likely to be horrendously unstable, and uh, why should we, it be so popular? Well, okay, let me try and say why it is, at least I think why I think it is. And we can then start to think, you know, are these good reasons? What are they really telling us? I only can concentrate on very small part of the whole subject, but I want to concentrate on a rather striking part of the subject. Now I'm calling this mirror symmetry magic. This actually has to do with the sort of M-theory version of strings. Uh, and this led, I suppose, Witten originally made uh, some suggestions here, and then um, these suggested that the, the, the manifolds, these are things called Calabi-Yau manifolds, which were in the uh, host pipe picture. I had a, a circle going around the host pipe, but if you want to have six dimensions or something, or seven dimensions to uh, uh, curl up into a little tiny ball, then you've got more complicated, more complicated things you might do. And the way in which people like to do this, for various technical reasons, is in terms of what are called Calabi-Yau manifolds. And I don't want to bother you with what they are, but there are these interesting, mathematically very interesting manifolds, structures, spaces, um, and people have been interested in them for some time. Uh, and there are various things you could, questions you can ask about some of these spaces. And one of these is the question of counting what are called rational curves. Well, a rational curve is basically a Riemann surface, which is a sphere topology. Don't worry too much about that. But it's counting this curves of a certain kind, complex curve. The C should be appearing in these pictures here. And there were some calculations done by a couple of Norwegians. There are these uh, spaces, and there's a whole family of them. There's the first one, the second one, the third one. And in each of these, you can count how many of these rational curves there are. Well, these people counted them in the, in the smallest one, and they came up with a number 2,875. And the next one along, they came up with a number 609250, and the next one along 2682549425. Well, then using these ideas of mirror symmetry, uh, Philip Candilas and his collaborators produced this family of numbers. And you see the first two are the same. The third one is different. Now, apparently, you see, it, the ideas coming from string theory said these numbers should be the same. But they weren't mathematical statements. They weren't proofs of anything. And so the mathematicians tended to say, well, that's very interesting that you got the first two right. But uh, it's only a conjecture after all, so why should you get the other one right? I mean, you don't believe that. 
But then, I suppose after being tested a bit, they went away and looked at their calculation and most specifically the computer code that they'd been using and found, whoops, there's a mistake here. And correcting the mistake, they came up with this number. So this says, far from being a kind of sloppy old physicist conjecture, this is a jolly good way of doing it. And in fact, Philip, Philip Candilas and his collaborators, they went ahead and said, well, look, we can do a few more numbers for if you like. And so they come up with all these ones here. So, okay, I think, I'm not quite sure to, to what extent these things are fully proved, but it does seem, although originally it's a conjecture coming from ideas of string theory, and this is, there's something magical going on there. Well, another point is that mirror symmetry seems to involve the swapping round of what are called Hodge numbers, uh, where real and complex parameters get interchanged. So you have some numbers which are naturally complex numbers, and they get swapped over for other numbers which are real. And it seems completely crazy that these things should really be symmetry. Something seems to be going on behind the scenes where quantum field theory or string-like entities, of I should say of string-like entities, reveals some kind of hidden symmetry involving these complex numbers, which is mathematically true. So there's something going on there, but what is it telling us about physics? And there's a big enigma, it seems to me, hiding there. I think I'll end by giving you a couple of quotes. Now, the first one was some time ago, was given from Ed Witten, and he was obviously very impressed by, I suppose, other things at that time. Uh, it said, it is said by Daniela Marti that string theory is part of 21st century physics that fell by chance into the 20th century. And it's that kind of statement, I think, which fired people up to think, well, why do we work on this subject? Now, in trying to finish writing a book that I've tried to address some of these issues and try to learn about them and find out what's been proved and so on, one of the people I wrote to was a mathematician, a pure mathematician, who um, seemed to know about these things and what was proved and what wasn't. And he was very helpful. Gave me, told me what was, what was established, what wasn't established. And then when he finished saying that, he said, well, look, I want to express something. And this is a sort of, I've not put the whole thing down, but uh, this is what he basically told me. Physicists, by which he meant string theorists, find that certain huge dualities between completely unrelated areas of pure mathematics would have to hold you just say, well, look, you know, the string theorists say, these things have to hold. These can't be coincidence. I can't emphasize enough how deep some of these dualities are. The constant, they, they, I suppose, constantly surprise us with new predictions. They show up structure never thought possible. Mathematicians confidently predicted several times that these things just weren't possible. That they couldn't be, they're just not the right kind of thing, they just can't be true. But, Every prediction made, suitably interpreted mathematically, has turned out to be correct, such as the ones I just showed you. We have no idea why they're true. They must come from a higher reason. I think this is stating very much one of the reasons that, um, that gives string theory its life. And it comes basically from the mathematics community. I've often found this, you know, people say, well, these ideas, we get them from string theory, we had no idea these things were going to be true, they turn out to be true, and if they're people 
who maybe aren't particularly, don't know particularly much about physics and so on, and I've certainly heard them say this, they say, well, look, these ideas come from physics, they give us mathematical things we had no conception of, therefore, I believe the physics must be right. So the physics, the, the criterion one sees are, are these mathematical criteria, and they're telling us something deep is going on out there. Now, what's the answer there, you see? I think, I, I mean, I'm, I can't tell you the answer because I don't know the answer, but uh, the question really is, to what extent is it fashion that's driving string ideas? To what extent is it genuine physical motivations? Well, I don't think it's genuine physical motivation. This is my, I'm speaking for my own personal opinion here. Because I think that the theory as it exists, the string theory as we present, presented, as has been presented to us, or the M theory, doesn't really hang together as a theory, and I don't believe that it can be physics of the future as it stands. I don't believe that it can be, certainly I don't think it can be quantum gravity. I have lots of reasons for worrying about that. I don't think it's a theory of quantum gravity. But I'm jolly glad people are doing it, and it's very likely that it's not just mathematics, that there is something deep in physics which is sort of being revealed by these ideas. I mean, I think this, this is quite a powerful statement here. And moreover, the sort of ideas which go into this, well, what, what is it that's gone into it? Well, I, in the statement here, you see, it's something like this, that where you combine the ideas of quantum field theory with some of these string-like entity ideas, there is something deep going on there. And it could be that's just accidental, it's nothing to do with physics at all, and it's, uh, okay, some magic mathematics which is going on behind there. And in fact, we know this kind of thing happens. If you take uh, the, the great thing that Andrew Wiles did, proving uh, the um, Fermat last theorem, that had to do with comparing two systems of numbers, and you see these numbers are always the same. And then, okay, you can find out a reason why they have to be the same. But it's, it's something rather similar. You see with the, these numbers here, you have numbers which are the same, and there is a reason. There's a mathematical reason why they're the same, but is it telling you something deep about physics? Well, as I said, I, I, just I have to leave you this. I'm not coming to a clear answer. Um, I think it very likely is telling us something deep about the physical world, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's telling us that string theory or M theory as it is now is right. I think it's an indication that you might be, it might be a good thing to pursue going in that direction and seeing what really is going on and what is it that's being revealed here. Whether that justifies the... Uh, Lists that I gave you earlier on, if I can find them now, which I'm not sure I can, you know, of the, of the uh, different approaches to quantum gravity, I have a lot of trouble with that. I, I think I worry that string theory kind of, as, as in the world as we see it at the moment, or physics, world of physics as we see it at the moment, it seems kind of to be pushing all these other ideas to the side, whereas I think we need input from other ideas and I, I really feel that uh, there is too much activity on the string side, particularly in quantum gravity, and uh, 
it is too fashionable, but on the other hand, it's something that I want to see. There's another question, which department should it be done in, you see? <laughs> is this mathematics or is it physics? So I think these are questions. I, I think I'll just leave it like that because I don't have a clear answer to these questions and maybe it's a good point to stop and people can think for themselves as to what the right answer is. I think it basically is that the numbers are, are just way out of range. I mean, certainly those energies are, are, are out of the range, way, way out of the range of any accelerator. So uh, there might be some indirect way of, uh, of experimentally testing these things. And for example, one idea that's been put forward is that maybe some of the dimensions aren't just that small, you see, and they might be, you know, millimeter or something. And that would make a difference to uh, the inverse square law, and that would be uh, detestable. I think the situation is really that if they were lucky, you see, and some of the dimensions were that big, then maybe you could see them. But if you don't see them, it's again this, this sort of uh, popper business. If you don't see them, it doesn't shoot anything down. So I think it's, the problem is to find some criterion which really tells you that the theory is wrong. Now the trouble is that, that, that it doesn't really all sorts of places it doesn't make predictions in, you see. It doesn't make much of a prediction with regard to whether gravity should be modified at certain scales. It doesn't say much about what the particle physics spectrum should be, because it, one of the aims of string theory is also to say something about what, you know, how you go beyond the standard model and, and do we see some features which, which uh, uh, are not predicted by existing theories and which would be predicted by string theory. Well, there's no, it's nowhere close. You just don't get that kind of a thing. So the theory as it stands just isn't geared to producing observations. I'm not saying that people haven't tried, because they do. But apart from that, I'm not sure I can give you a good answer. There's some right here. Um, yes, excuse me. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, I'm sorry. I was trying, maybe I didn't explain myself very well. The, uh, that number was changed. They found they'd made a mistake. That is, the, the mathematicians had made a mistake. I'm sorry about that. It was the mathematicians who made a mistake. And uh, it, it was not that they'd made a mistake in their calculations, you know, multiplying numbers together or something. It's a computer program. They'd, they'd put on a computer a program to try and work out these numbers. And somewhere in that program was a mistake. And that mistake, when corrected, gave the same number as the string theory argument. So that's, that's the way around. I'm afraid, yes, it's, it's, for mathematicians, one might like to have seen it the other way, but... <laughs> Sorry? 
the 12 new Norwegians had their, they'd made a, I don't know if they had or whether they'd given the computer calculation to somebody, some, somebody else to do, I have no idea. But there was a mistake in, in their calculation, yes. You, you discussed a few theories that had many dimensions of time or space, but are, are all of them with one, one time dimension? And if so, is there any explanation? They're not all. In fact, I didn't mention it, but there's a thing which is called F theory. <laughs> M, some, M stands for all sorts of things, but I think one of the things it might stand for is mother, you see, the mother of all theories, in which case you might consider the father of all theories. So there is a thing, <laughs> there is a thing known as F theory, well, when I say there is a thing, I mean, there isn't even an M theory, really. I mean, it's not a theory as it stands, but there isn't an F. I mean, to that degree, there is a sort of F theory. And in F theory, there are two times. So it's got, uh, let's see, that's 12 dimensions altogether, 10 space, and two times. But I think having more than one time creates all sorts of other problems. And so, well, it's, yeah, I could see some other questions. Does the quantum gravity, you expect it to remove the singularities from ordinary general relativity? Or, I mean, um, so you're running out of... Um, if, you're, if you're here on my Wednesday talk, I'll address that question. But the short answer is, I don't think it should. Um, people try, and in loop variable theory in, in particular, there is a suggestion that they can get rid of the singularities in their approach. But I personally, for reasons which I'll explain in lecture number three, I personally have considerable qualms about that. It seems to me that that's not necessarily a good thing to do. If you could do it, it would be bad news for the theory rather than good news for it. But I'll explain that. How about the other way? Well, the, uh... How about... Well, the uh, uh, quantum mechanics remove, uh, sorry, well, well, general relativity remove the quantum mechanical singularities, field theory singularities. I'm sorry, I missed just the end of what you're saying. Well, uh, there's two, singular, two fields full of singularities, which is strange. Oh, I see. Well, one of these fields help the other, I guess. Well, you remove this, the quantum singularities with general relativity. Well, it's usually thought that there are two parts of the same problem because um, the singularities which occur in quantum field theory or the infinities uh, certainly it's the point of view in string theory that these would be removed once you introduce the, the gravitational interaction or basically when you introduce strings but the point is the claim is and this is an idea that goes actually back to Klein of the Kaluza Klein the same Klein who suggested that you see, a lot of the infinities that you get in quantum field theory, the major ones, come about from large momenta, which means small distances. So if you change the nature of space-time in some sense, when distances get very tiny, then that might supply a cutoff to these infinities. And so the idea is that by introducing gravity, that at these very tiny lengths, the Planck scale, will change the structure of space-time, and so instead of getting the infinity, you get a cutoff. Right. So that, that is... In fact, yes, it's saying these infinities might go to... Well, that, that's getting rid of the infinities of quantum field theory. And uh, the idea, the other end of the side of that coin is to say, well, you apply the rules of quantum mechanics to try and get rid of the singularities of general relativity. Well, I think there's something right in that, but it's probably not quite that. But would that mean that uh, quantum gravity, 
quantum gravity, as we understand the quantization procedure, is not, is not good enough to, uh, to deal with this yes. problem. But my personal opinion is I, I'll say something about, uh, I have to get my, straight my lectures, that's the next one, yes. My personal opinion is that the rules of quantum mechanics will have to change for more than one reason. And th they do change when gravity gets involved. So I think there are reasons for believing that. And so that's, if you like, more to the point of the answer that I think these questions have, that, that when you actually bring gravity in correctly, the rules of quantum mechanics will also have to become modified. But that's, that's something I'll, I'll try to say something about next time. Yeah, you, you made this argument about how uh, uh, sort of cosmic energy scales were uh, great enough to excite the, uh, let's say, the, the modes in uh, the highly curved spatial dimensions. Yes. Um, so, and, and then you made this additional argument that you, you, you would, would think that would lead to space-time instabilities. Uh, first of all, I don't really understand well, uh, why that. That, would, that would be true. <laughs> Second of all, even though these, these energies are available, uh, it seems like they would probably only be present around a black hole or, or something like that. And aren't those objects that are, uh, I mean, aren't there uh, uh, well, space-time instabilities yeah. uh, and the point in I'm a black to hole anyhow? So, I mean, w yeah. w just because right. that amount of energy is is sort of present in the gravitational energy of the Earth doesn't mean that you can excite excitations of that energy scale. I think one of the questions is, what kind of physics do you apply to the situation? <clears throat> is it valid to consider the classical space-times, you see? And the, and the theorem that I was referring to has to do only with space, classical space-times. Now, you see, um, you can make a kind of qualitative argument to say that, that in fact uh, you're disturbing that extra dimension. So, by so, see, if you just excite the lowest mode, since that extends over the entire universe, you have a certain amount E of energy to excite that mode. But that excites the mode over the entire universe. So it involves an infinitesimal change in the nature of that extra dimension. So it seems to me that you really are in a classical regime. I mean, it's a question of, of what the right physics to use there. Okay, these things that one can argue about and say, you know, this or that. But, but the theorem that I referred to is in classical theory. So it says, is it, you have to ask the question, is it fair to look at a classical argument to answer this instability question? And if you come to the conclusion that it is fair, at least to give you a good feeling for what's going on, then the claim is that the singularity theorems do seem to tell you that there are these extra dimensions are unstable. And it's not a question of just nearing a black hole, because you just, it's a question of injecting this extra energy entirely over the whole universe. I mean, it's not, it hasn't had to be localized. Yeah, but, but, but if that it requires so much energy to excite that mode, uh, why doesn't that energy just collapse into the much, much lower energy mo modes in the non, the, the less oh, curved? This is the lowest. So this is the lowest mode. In, in, in that dimension, but. But why can't the energy uh, what, uh, convert into modes in, in the less curved dimensions? And in, in which case, it's not clear to me why the, the modes in the more curved dimensions would be excited at all. And uh, 
I'm not completely sure I'm with you here. Um, I don't quite see why you're suggesting those little ones are going to be untouched, that's all. I mean, there's enormous numbers of degrees of freedom there. It's just a question of, of uh, is the energy, the fact that you've got what's considered to be a large energy, at least from particle physics point of view, is that going to prevent you from exciting any of those degrees of freedom in the sm small dimensions? It's just, you know, one, well, let's, perhaps I should, we should um, leave this aside for the moment. I mean, the, these arguments, can, one can go on with the arguments and... Uh, well, uh, in any case, there will be two more lectures, so I, I want to remind everybody <laughs> that there is a lecture on Monday, eight o'clock, Open Auditorium, and then on Wednesday also at eight o'clock. So, uh, more questions? Of course, I'm sorry. Can you use the microphone? We can't hear you. What's there? Is yeah, the microphone on Monday. So the Monday there is. Where? Use the microphone. We can't hear you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. So Monday, uh, is, there is a lecture, the second in the series, in Richardson Auditorium at 8 o'clock, right? And uh, Wednesday, I'm not so sure, Wednesday is at 4.30. Uh, and Makash, okay, so, yes. Makash 10 instead of Makash. Yes. Yes. When do you suppose what? Okay. <laughs> the, the question had to do with when are we going? You say the, char, the mass of the electron was the question. Oh, any, any one of your 19 parameters. There's absolutely no indication, as far as I can see, that any one of these theories has anything to say whatsoever about what's referred to as, let's see, what is it, the hierarchy problem, which has to do with why the Planck mass is ridiculously of a completely different scale from ordinary elementary particles. I think one's going to have to need a, something quite different from what one sees in these theories. I don't, I don't have an answer to that. It's a big mystery. Yeah. Many theories.